I want to take a couple of minutes and uh, discuss with you and uh, study with you about a subject that I think uh, is important uh, in the context of talking to individuals that are uh, not Christians or maybe in religious discussion with others uh, who have uh, a different view of uh, the work of the Spirit in a person's life and maybe even such issues of uh, the assurance of salvation. Uh, when those kind of subjects come up, sometimes I think there are ideas already that are in folks' heads that they've been taught through uh, in various means through uh, denominational teaching that are obstacles. Uh, obstacles maybe uh, and somewhat present to them some inconsistencies in their uh, own understanding of the Bible that if we can, uh, if we can be able to take the Bible and show them uh, and show ourselves as well uh, what the Bible teaches about uh, this particular element of the work of the Spirit, I think it's helpful to them as, and us as well. So I'll start out with this question. Uh, how can you identify a spirit-filled person? Uh, what's the criteria by which you would judge uh, spirituality? What are the characteristics of true spirituality? Uh, and how can you develop spirituality in our lives? Uh, this lesson is going to design to ask those questions and then answer them from the scriptures. I believe that uh, if there's any particular concept that it maybe is Satan has been very successful to misdefine uh, and in the religious world, spirituality is one of those things. That's a very general term used to describe anything from sitting under a tree and humming to the aspect of an individual who actually participates uh, in looking at what God uh, says in the Word of God. Sometimes the term spirituality, or the use of the term spiritual as, um, as, as an adjective, the idea of being filled with the Spirit or walking in the Spirit, uh, is always looked at, or many times it's looked at, from the standpoint of some mystical uh, magical or even miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Now we're going to we're going to assume that we recognize that that terminology in the Bible is used in different ways in different contexts, uh, and we'll try to make some distinctions as we go through this. But it takes some discernment, I guess, is what I'm trying to say up front. Is that we can't just def- come away with a single definition of the aspect of either the Spirit or what it means to have spirituality and plug that in wherever we see the word in the New Testament and come away with a consistent or even an accurate consi- uh, uh, understanding of what the Bible actually teaches about these subjects. The word spirit is used about 576 times in the New King James Version of the Bible. So if we don't come to an understanding in our own minds of what spirit means and ultimately what in the context way that particular word is used, uh, we're going to misunderstand a lot of the Bible. Uh, certainly, the, the the numerous occasions in which it talks, it uses the term spirit, would call for some consistency in our ability to be able to uh, use that terminology and understand it. But the Bible uses the terminology in different ways. It often speaks of both the spirit of man and the spirit of God. Uh, the idea here that there is a, there is a, that there are times in which it talks about the Holy Spirit, and we understand that to mean the Spirit of God, the Spirit, the, the, the person of the Godhead, as we sometimes refer. Uh, and then it talks about the Spirit of man, that we are to do things with our spirit. Uh, we love God with all our heart and with all our spirit. So the word spirit, though it is the same, in most cases it's the same Greek word uh, in the New Testament. It's used in different contexts in different ways. The word is pneuma in the Greek language, which most literally means breath. To breathe, or particularly the aspect of to make, take a breath or make a breath, um, and we recognize that that terminology, even the Old Testament uh, scriptures, is borne out uh, that God breathed into man uh, the breath of life, and he became a living spirit. 
the idea that breath means spirit sometimes is also an avenue for which we understand the work of the spirit in terms of speech that the spirit speaks and that the spirit reveals God's word um, sometimes the word spirit represents the presence of life uh, Jesus said that the spirit gives life that the spirit is life and the idea that spirit is used even in the description of physical life not necessarily just human life but life in itself uh, in the term that, that life exists as opposed to something that's dead so there is the spirit and then there is that which does not have the spirit that's dead so those concepts are important as we begin to make contextual application of the word when we ask the question, what is spirituality, How do we, the idea that the noun aspect of something that has the spirit in it or something that is represented by the spirit of God or the spirit of man, uh, there are a couple of, character, there are a couple of uh, uh, definitions that I found that helped me along this line. Vine says that one of the definitions of the word spiritual means things that have their origin with God and which therefore are in harmony with his character. So when it talks, when it talks about something being spiritual... Uh, that one of the prominent ideas of spirituality or spiritual as an adjective is that this is connected with God that God is the spirit that provides for things that are spiritual Uh, he goes on to say all that is produced and maintained among men by the operations of the spirit of God is spiritual now that helps me to understand that spirituality then is something that comes from God it's not something I manufacture myself it's not something that I discover or come across or that's innate, innate within me in the sense in which that word is used in the biblical terminology. Spirituality then is defined by the activity and the presence of the Spirit of God as it's used in the Scripture. Vine goes on to say, The spiritual state is reached by diligence in the Word of God and in prayer. It is maintained by obedience and self-judgment. Such as are led by the Spirit are spiritual. But of course, spirituality is not a fixed or absolute condition. It admits of growth, indeed growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18, that is evidence of true spirituality. Now I think that's a, that's a good summation. The reason I put that in there is not just to throw definitions out there, but to recognize that there are many who see in terms of defining the word itself that there is a very innate and inherent connection between the work of the presence of God and what true spirituality is. And the spirituality in the Bible is dynamic. It's not something that a person gets and he always has at the same level. A person can grow in spirituality and should grow in spirituality. Or the other aspect of that, a person might get less spiritual and become, you see, more worldly or more to the flesh. I don't think we can understand the aspect of the work of the spirit or the idea of spirituality without including the other side of that. But the flip side of spirituality is what we might refer to as worldliness or in the use of the biblical the more present biblical terminology is the aspect of the flesh. That a person is led by the flesh, by the desires of the flesh, or he's led by the Spirit of God. If he's led by the Spirit of God, he grows in spirituality. If he's led by the, 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 the lust of the flesh, then as James tells us about, he grows further and further into sin. Um, and he becomes unspiritual in that regard. Now, one, one direction I would like for us to go uh, tonight is to discuss this aspect of the the relationship in our thinking between the work of the Holy Spirit or in the noun aspect of it, spirituality in our lives and feelings or emotions. And the reason I think this is an important question to consider is because often the works and presence of the Holy Spirit in people's thinking and even in religious teaching is connected with feelings or the emotions of the individual. Uh, that the evidence that the Spirit is in a person's life, the evidence that the Spirit has worked in a person's life, is whether or not they have a changed emotion. 
Uh, and we, we need to be able to see whether or not there is a biblical connection because this is such a familiar connection in religion that is almost assumed you know, that, the person, that to have the Spirit means to show some type of emotion or to exhibit some type of emotion. Or more in the aspect of, uh, of the um, evidentiary aspect of it that if a person is a spiritual person that he knows he's spiritual uh, because he has feelings that evidence that that we're going to talk about the aspect of assurance of salvation. How can a person know he's saved? Many people will answer that. I know I'm saved by what I feel. I know that the Spirit has worked within me or the Spirit has even revealed within me because I have certain feelings. And that is such a prominent connection, I think, that we find it even in the songs that we sing. We just sang a song a few moments ago, um, Near to the Cross. Uh, If you notice, I think it's the first or second line that talks about, I heard the voice of God. Uh, now, that's poetic language. I'm not saying that it's wrong to sing that. But there are a lot of folks that would sing that song with the idea that God spoke into them and that God, God gave them a feeling or something inside them that gave them evidence that they were right before God, they were near to God, and that that's how a person even would grow in their nearness to God. So the question that comes to mind, does the Bible support this connection between emotions and the work of the Holy Spirit? Particularly the aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit um, in, the production, in the production of the truth, the revelation of the truth. Does the Spirit work through emotions? Well, well, if you turn to the book of Acts, I just want to take a couple minutes and look at some of the examples of the Holy Spirit working, some that we're very familiar with, in terms of the revelation of the gospel. Some of these things that we're going to relate to uh, even connect the aspect of the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit when individuals... Uh, heard the gospel and then that was confirmed through miracles when individuals became convinced they became believers uh, that the, and the spirit was working in that of course one that we're most familiar with maybe is Acts chapter 2 so we'll start there uh, is there a connection well I think what we recognize is that in the thing when we look through the book of Acts we're going to I believe what we're going to come, be able to come to conclusion is that, that the Holy Spirit operated in the, in the book of Acts without reference to an individual's emotions In Acts chapter 2, the apostles at Pentecost, you remember it says the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now you can't read verse 4 without recognizing the Spirit was at work. Peter's going to say later on that this is fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, or at least the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now what I want us to notice here, or at least look for, is that is there any reference in those verses where it talks about the spirit coming upon them, or even if we read the rest of the chapter in terms of the preaching of the Apostle Peter, where it would give us evidence that the spirit created an emotion in anyone, that the, that the, that the spirit's presence was evidenced by the fact that someone felt something, how the apostles felt. Can we look at this passage and know how the apostles felt? It tells us the Holy Spirit fell upon them. It tells us rationally what they did, that rationally they spoke in other languages, and that those who heard them understood what they were saying. But that's not a description of an emotion. That's a description of a rational act. And that's what the Holy Spirit produced, or at least that's what the text would seem to indicate to us. And then you move ahead to Acts chapter 8. You remember that... Uh, Philip had preached the gospel in Samaria uh, and many had believed on him. He worked miracles there. Peter and John came from Jerusalem because they needed to lay their hands upon the individuals. They, they would receive the Holy Spirit. 
uh, and many Samaritans did receive the Holy Spirit uh, as a result of Peter and John coming down. But if you if we just read those passages, I don't have them up here, but in, in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, But when they had believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, continued with Philip, and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which they did. The, the, uh, in verse 14, goes on to say, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet it had fallen upon none of them. Now they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so what Again, we have evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in order to bring about the conversion of the sinner, that there are miraculous elements involved here, the working of Peter, uh, working of Philip, and also that the laying all the hands uh, of the apostles provided for uh, the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. Again, we look and see, is there any reference here to the emotions of Philip? Any reference to the feelings of the apostles, Peter and John? Uh, or what we or do what we recognize here is really just another description of the rational act of the Holy Spirit being delivered to an individual by the laying of the apostles' hands um, and in connection with that, the working of miracles. The household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And again, it describes the aspect of the Holy Spirit falling upon them. And in later in chapter 11, when... Peter describes it again without reference to their emotions. It says, "For they heard, uh, they they heard them speak in their own in other languages." And the idea there then that the speaking in tongue that was present there, uh, an individual's understanding of what was being spoken was a rational act without reference to the aspect of individuals' feelings being changed, or even that their feelings that on the occasion was evidence that the Holy Spirit had arrived. The prophets of the New Testament. So with men in Ephesus, if you look at Acts chapter 19, I've got to mention this one here. The Holy Spirit uh, came upon them, it says, and, and they spoke and prophesied. Uh, these were the gentlemen that were, that were uh, baptized in the baptism of John. That in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul then uh, laid the hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It says there, as, a, as evidence of that Holy Spirit being given to them, that they spoke and they prophesied. No evidence that that the appearance of the Holy Spirit being the Holy Spirit being given to them changed their emotion, or that there was evidence given that they had the the spirit because they had an emotional experience. But rather, what's associated with it is a rational act. Interesting passage in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse thirty-two, where Paul is describing um, to the church at Corinth the proper use of spiritual gifts or the activity of the Spirit in providing miraculous gifts for the first-century church. The idea that they would prophesy uh, and showing that the, 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 the gift of prophecy was superior to the gift, I believe, of speaking in tongues. He makes a statement in verse 32 that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translation says the spirits of the prophets are under the control of the prophets. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe what certainly what it implies is that when the spirit came upon a gentleman and he was going to prophesy... He was going to do what the Holy Spirit had given them to do, that he was in control of when that particular gift would be used, that it was related to the aspect of the use of uh, the activity of a rational act, that his emotions were not going to be overwhelmed, he wasn't going to be coerced or forced by the Spirit to feel something or even to do something, that the spirits of the prophets are under the control of the prophets. Now look at all of this together 
And, and what we recall about the mentioning of the Holy Spirit in both miraculous and non-miraculous measures in the book of Acts, and we recognize that feelings or emotions are not a part of the discussion. Rational acts and rational behavior become the evidence not only of salvation, but also of the appearance of the Holy Spirit and ultimately the validity of the Word of God that came as a result of the appearance of the Holy Spirit. And that, that those who received the Spirit spoke in other languages. Individuals heard them speak in other languages. Or they performed miracles. And individuals saw the miracles that they performed. And then they believed upon them. That there's no mentioning of the aspect that they knew they had the Holy Spirit because they felt something. Now that tells me that this whole connection between emotions and the work of the Holy Spirit is not something that naturally derives itself out of the text. It's something that's been added as a result, I believe, of what people practice in relationship to their understanding of this work of the Spirit, falsely so, but it's not something that comes out of the text. Now, another passage, I think, so emotions are not a measure of spirituality. Another passage that comes to my mind here is in Luke chapter 10. You remember Jesus set out the 70 on what sometimes is called the limited commission to the, to the, uh, to the lost sheep of Israel and he gave them the power uh, to perform miracles and he gave them a, a measure of the Spirit so that even they could cast out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. And it tells us that when the 70 came back that they rejoiced. They, no doubt what they experienced in that time in which they were out performing works of the Spirit was an emotional journey. Can we imagine it would be anything other than that? That here were ordinary fellows and they were out, you see, uh, by the power of God, casting out demons and healing people. And people were believing on them and being, uh, and th- there were things going on that they had never seen happen before, particularly to themselves. So it doesn't surprise us, I think, in this, that in Luke chapter 10, that uh, they are uh, uh, joyful about what's taking place. And when they come back to Jesus, they express that joy. In verse 17, of chapter 10, uh, he says there, And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. I believe Jesus' intention was to encourage them in this period of great emotional uh, high, so to speak, when they were really joyful for what had happened, he tells them this is just the beginning. I mean, you're going to exercise authority over in the spiritual realm that you've never seen before, and I will give you this authority. Verse 20 starts with the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but that the spirits are subject to, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, uh, that particular uh, uh, response of Jesus is somewhat telling to me in the sense that uh, it is a connection between the emotions of the disciples who have experienced even the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus says about their response to that emotion or how they should uh, at least account or assess the aspect of why they are rejoicing. what What am I to connect the emotional response to Some conclude that we cannot have real joy in our lives apart from some visible evidence of the Spirit working within us. And so they suggest there can be no real joy in the absence of miracles or miraculous workings. I believe Jesus' answer here would dispel that idea. The Lord's answer really focuses on and indicates the real source of their rejoicing or their emotional response. We might recognize carefully here that 
what the, the, a conclusion to this, and that is that we don't know we are saved because we rejoice, but rather we rejoice because we know that we're saved. It's an, it's, it's an element of understanding what produces what. Does the emotion produce the assurance, or does the assurance produce the emotion? And what Jesus says here is that you shouldn't rejoice just in the aspect that the Spirit's worked among you, or that you see the visible evidence of the Spirit, but rather you need to rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that this aspect of being saved and the assurance that you're right before God is the real source of the emotion and what produces the emotion. So there's a place for joy, and I, th- I think certainly we need to, and maybe should I should have begun with that anyway from the standpoint of prefacing uh, the real intent of this lesson. We have to recognize in a very real way that there's a place for happiness and joy and reverence and so many other, even, I think, sadness uh, and, uh, and grieving in the experience of the Christian. That emotions are a natural part, not only of our human experience, but they are a natural part of our spiritual experience before God. And it sometimes troubles me, at least uh, to, to some extent, troubles me that there that the, I see so many Christians that are afraid of expressing emotion that somehow the expression of emotion is uh, is giving in to something of the flesh or giving in to some teaching of error and that's certainly a false perception we need to be emotional about our relationship to God but what I would submit to you is that from the biblical perspective what the Bible actually teaches us is that emotions are not something that's created by us but rather created by the situation that we're in that emotions are the natural response of our relationship to God, and our responsibility to obey God is the avenue by which we will create the proper emotions in our life. And in that sense, then, spirituality is the key. Not in the aspect of being evidenced by emotion, but rather spirituality is the key of creating the proper emotions. So spirituality should not be imposed nor artificially created by the creation of some emotional response. But it must be connected with the aspect of knowledge. And that's what Jesus says to these folks. You know something? Rejoice over what you know. You have assurance of something? Then rejoice over that. So that leads to the question then, how can we know we are saved? If knowing that we're saved is that which produces the proper joy, how can I know I'm saved? And that's a question I think that is often voiced in, in, in terms of religious questions and some may, sometimes in religious discussions. We get different answers about this. I believe that Jesus entertained, uh, or at least addressed, and didn't entertain, but he addressed this particular question in different venues when the aspect of salvation was in, in view, of whether or not a person knew he was saved because of what he'd done meritoriously in his own life, or whether or not he knew he was saved because he had a real relationship with God and because he had faith. A passage that comes to my mind in this is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The word witness here is significant because the idea of bearing witness means that someone is going to say something that they've heard or they're going to make known that which they know to be true in support of a position. So a witness goes on to stand, he says he tells what he saw, and then that then establishes, if that if that witness is cooperated with other witnesses, that establishes in a judicial court the truthfulness of a matter. And that's the very con- aspect here of that Paul's using to address this relationship 
between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man. This is one of those passages where it's clearly evident that he's talking about the Spirit of God in addition to the Spirit of man. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. It's not hard to figure out. There are two different spirits involved there. Well, what's he teaching us? Well, in this particular passage, what is he saying to us? I believe that he first references the aspect of the Holy Spirit's testimony. What's implied in this passage, or maybe it's more than implied, it's actually said, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the fact that you and I are the children of God. It testifies to the fact that we are the children of God. Well, now, where do we see that testimony? Well, we've just seen in the book of Acts that it didn't come in any way through any emotional experience. There's no evidence of that, that God sent somebody in motion to show an emotional experience to testify in, in some way, in a spiritual way, that they were saved. No, the testimony that someone was saved or someone was a child of God came through the knowledge that they had of their relationship to God and of God Himself. And I think that's borne out. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks in verse 17, says the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The aspect that it's the, it is the tool of the Spirit of God uh, to bring about the Spirit's purposes. So if the Spirit is going to testify uh, as to who is, the child, uh, who is a child of God, what tool would he use to make that known? Well, clearly it's the Word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scriptures are given by the inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jude says that we should contend earnestly for the, for the faith that's once and all been delivered for man, and that Peter tells us that everything that's been delivered is suitable for the, the, the full measure of godliness that a man needs. And that's what Paul and Peter and John all say, is that the, spirit, is that the words of the Scriptures themselves are sufficient to testify to who's right and who's wrong, to whether or not a person is right with God or wrong with God. Or, uh, not approved by God. That corresponds as well with Jesus' own personal mission among the apostles. The apostles were led into all truth, John chapter 16. Everything that pertained to life and godliness was given to them so that they could make known and testify who was right with God. And that's what Jesus told them. You're going to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and the other most parts of the world. The, whole, the, church of, the church in the first century was devoted to apostolic doctrine because it laid down the parameters by which an individual could judge their own life. It was the testimony of God as to who was right and who was wrong. In John chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus said to his apostles, He who rejects me does not receive my words, has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So we recognize that the Holy Spirit's witness as to who is right, who is a child of God, is the, comes through the Word of God. The other part of Romans chapter 8 is the second part of that testimony is that my spirit also bears witness that I am a child of God. Now my spirit's witness is not the same as the witness of the, of the Holy Spirit. Those are two different witnesses. But my spirit's witness is based upon the knowledge in my own heart that I am right before God. It is something that I would say about myself, so to speak, or my spirit would say about myself before God. So the spirit bears witness with our spirit, and the word with there is very important. It does not say that the Holy Spirit bears witness to my spirit, that the whole whole aspect of my salvation or assurance comes just through what the spirit would do to, to me or provide for me. But rather, there's a joint witness here, the spirit of God in my own spirit. Therefore, my spirit must submit to and agree to the witness of the Holy Spirit, the words of Scripture. And when that happens, 
then there is assurance. The passage Joe read for us just a few moments ago clearly describes that. 1 John chapter 3, John says, And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. So God testifies. And if our spirit condemns us and will not, cannot agree with the testimony of Scripture, then God's greater than our hearts. And certainly there is the condemnation that comes through the full knowledge of God of who we are. But if our heart does not condemn us, and our testimony agrees with what the Scripture has revealed about who is right before God, then we have confidence. Then we have assurance before God. So John tells us where this assurance comes from. And there's no evidence that comes through a feeling, through an emotional response, or through, emotional, through the aspect of an emotional experience. Rather, it comes through the connection of revealed knowledge and my own obedience to the Word of God. James Bales writes, My spirit must agree with the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and when it does, then the Spirit's testimony agrees with mine. But I must bring the witness of my spirit into harmony with the Spirit's witness instead of trying to make the Spirit agree with my arbitrary decisions. So the responsibility of acquiring assurance before God, at least a degree of that responsibility, falls upon me. And that is to know what the, test, what the Spirit testifies as to what makes a person right before God. And then to submit to that by obedience by doing what God has given me to do. Now how's that fitting with the book of Acts? The thing we've seen. Well, that's precisely what happened in Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit revealed that these individuals on, in Acts chapter 2 were guilty of the murder of Jesus and they were sinners before God. And that testified to the fact that they were not right before God. They said, what shall we do? And the Spirit testified to them, you must repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And when they submitted to that testimony and they were obedient to the commandments, they had assurance that they'd been forgiven of their sins. Now how sure was that assurance? How confident could they be that they were forgiven of their sins? Well, there was a twofold testimony to their relationship to God that was right. There was the testimony of the Scriptures, the apostolic message that says, this is what will make you right, repent, and be baptized. And then there was the testimony of their own spirit, this voice in the Scripture that says, as many as believe the word were baptized. And the Lord added them together into the assembly of God, those who had been baptized. There was the testimony of their own spirit that they had submitted to the will of God. Therefore, the source, you see, of their assurance, and of everyone's assurance is not emotions or feelings. It begins in the testimony of the Holy Spirit and it's confirmed or it is made consummate in my willingness to submit to the testimony of the Spirit. Now what happens when that takes place? Where are the emotions? Well, Acts chapter 8 is a pretty good example of that. When the, the Ethiopian was submissive to the testimony of Philip as to what he needed to do and he went down into the water, it said he went on his way rejoicing. Now the rejoicing was the fruit of his obedience. It is nowhere indicated in the Scriptures that that joy was evidence that he was right before God. That testimony had already been given in the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of his own spirit together when he obeyed the Lord. If he, for some reason, did not rejoice, and I can't imagine why someone who had been saved would not rejoice as a natural fruit of that, it didn't disprove the fact that he was right before God if there was no emotional response. And I think that's certain we have to recognize that the idea here that, emo- that's, that emotions are unreliable because they are not consistent many times in life. There are times in which individuals that are right before God 
don't feel good about their relationship with God. They may even, they may even entertain doubts about their own righteousness before God and yet still be in a position of where they're saved. Still be in a condition where they're right before God even though they're struggling with doubts. Job is a good example of that. How much emotional testimony did Job have that he was right before God and yet he was right before God. He was righteous before God and defended himself in that regard. In the great throes of great, of great negative emotion, he defended his righteousness. Now, another question that comes to mind here, we'll cover this rather quickly, in connection with this, how do we measure spirituality? Can spirituality be measured by the level of subjective feeling, by the intensity of emotions that individual had? Well, we mentioned before that spirituality is measured by the outcome of life as directed by the Word of God, in the sense that it's not emotions that, uh, that, uh, that really portrayed whether or not an individual was drawing closer to God, but rather whether that person was submitting to the will of God and the rational acts or the rational behavior that they submitted to. And what we recognize is that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is evidence of the Spirit's presence and work in the person's life. That's, that fruit is not mysteriously or miraculously created, nor is it rooted in emotion. It's rooted in the rational activity of love and joy and peace and long-suffering kindness. That it, these fruits of the Spirit germinate and they grow through the power of the Word of God in relationship to the submission of the individual. And that speaks to their dynamic nature. That a person can grow in spirituality by producing the fruits of the Spirit in their life through the work of the Word of God. The passage we mentioned this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe, points that out. And the last part of the book of Ephesians is, a, I think, a real storehouse of being able to put together this aspect of spiritual development. Not only because of this verse, but as well because of what happens, what he addresses later on in the epistle. The passage we looked at this morning, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, which results in riot or dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And that's in the present tense, which means to be continually filled with the Spirit. And being filled there involves being overwhelmed or influenced by. Just like being drunk is to be influenced by wine, to be filled with the Spirit, to be influenced by the Spirit. Which produces the activities the Spirit would call upon an individual to submit to. So as we allow the words of the Holy Spirit to influence us, to fill us up, then we, you see, are become more spiritual people. We become an individuals that grow in our spirituality. The result of being filled with the Spirit in the passage itself is variously defined. In the, in the immediate context, he says, you be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that you give thanks to God, that you submit to one another in the fear of God. Those are all evidences, or, the, or those are all fruits of being filled with the Spirit that become evidence in a person's life that he is becoming more spiritual. It's made, it, it's, it grows in the aspect of his willingness and his desire to worship God, to be thankful for what God has done and to subject himself to the words of God. But then Paul goes on in that chapter, and I guess this is what I wanted to point out. He goes on in that chapter and gives several examples of this aspect of the development of spirituality. How, what's the outcome of the spirit-filled person in the rest of that chapter? Well, wives submit to their husbands, and husbands love their wives, chapter 5. Children obey their parents, and fathers bring their children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, chapter 6. Slaves are obedient to their masters, and masters treat their slaves properly, chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. Christians take on the spiritual battle and put on the armor of God so that they can fight against the, the, the devil and make a stand for God. Again, chapter 6. What Paul's addressing there is the development of true spirituality. 
It begins by understanding what God had done for them that he outlines in chapter 1 and talks about the aspect of their conversion to God when the Spirit influenced them to become children of God in chapter 2. And then he addresses it, you see, in chapter 3, the aspect of allowing the Spirit to develop in a person's life by being filled up with the Spirit of God so that they become more spiritual people. So we develop spirituality. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. It's not something that, that this is given to me, that now I'm a spiritual person. Certainly the Spirit works in my life to bring about change, and the, the sinner is converted through the work of the Spirit of God. But it's not a mystical thing that a person receives Spirit as though he would receive an, a vaccination or, re, or receive some possession that he cannot give up. He develops spirituality through allowing the Spirit to work in his life. A couple of ways. Certainly what we recognize is that it's developed through our connection with God. That goes back to what we said originally. What is spirituality? It's that which originates with God, that which comes from Him. So the closer I get to God, and the more intimate I have a relationship with Him, the more spiritual I become. Well, how does that happen? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. One is prayer. Prayer is an avenue for the development of spirituality. When I talk to God each day and I develop that relationship where Paul says, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks to God for this is the will of Christ in you, that in everything we make supplication to Him, that we grow closer to God. That as we mentioned before, we listen to God. We listen to God through Bible study, through looking at what the Word of God actually says and making an attempt to understand it, to meditate upon it, and to dwell upon it. Acts chapter 17 People in the people of Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily with readiness. A passage I think that points in that direction is Colossians chapter three verse sixteen, which is a parallel passage to Ephesians five nineteen, where Paul says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs." Where in one Paul passage Paul says, "Let uh, Christ dwell in your hearts through faith." The other passage, he says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. That's the same thing. Those are parallel statements. To let Christ dwell in me is not some mystical element of receiving the Spirit in some mysterious way. It is to take the word of God and let it dwell in my life and become submissive to it. We pursue holiness through comprehensive obedience to His will. And I believe the key we might point out here is that one of the elements of spiritual, development of spirituality is true repentance. To separate ourselves from the world around us and to be different, to be true, truly sanctified people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talked about separating ourselves uh, because we are spiritual houses. We are the temple of the living God. And God has said, this he said about the temple, I will come and dwell within you. But before the temple could ever be occupied by God, it had to be sanctified. It had to be made a place that was fit for the presence of God. And in that same way, even our physical bodies are to be sanctified before God and made right before God so that we can become the spiritual receptacles that God wants us to be. And then lastly, we have to be willing to suffer. And that's what Paul said before, that if we're willing to suffer, then we can grow spiritually. Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about his own life and he says he counted all things lost for the sake of Christ Jesus. That we'd suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. And I would suggest to you that righteousness is parallel to the aspect of spirituality. It's certainly not something different from it. 
And that Paul's saying that I attain that righteousness and that spirituality through suffering, suffering righteously for God and giving up the things of the world. Well, I think that understanding this, the whole element of spirituality is so important to uh, being able, as we mentioned before, to deal with some of the false concepts of what it means to know that I'm saved and people's thinking about the connection between emotions and spiritual spirituality, but also it helps me to understand the path that I have to travel. If I truly desire to be a spiritual person, then what path do I need to travel? Spirituality does not come because I put myself in the same building three times a week. It doesn't come by joining an institution to put my name upon a roll. It doesn't come through calling myself by a certain name or identifying myself in a certain way. Spirituality develops only through my connection with God and my closeness to God. If I don't spend time trying to draw close to God and certainly allowing His Word to influence my life and the everyday decisions of life, and spirituality is going to be very elusive to me. I'll not be more spiritual. And there are a lot of Christians, I think, that are in that condition. They've been Christians for a long time. But they're no more spiritual than they were when the first one came up out of the water in terms of their relationship to God. And that's sad. Because what flees with that lack of spirituality is the confidence that comes in the Christian's life that says, I'm right before God, that I have my salvation and I'm assured of it. And I'm convinced that's why there are a lot of Christians that go along, that go through all of maybe all of their Christian life, so to speak, without ever fully being confident that they're going to go to heaven. That's tragic. That's tragic. But it's not just the aspect I think of counting up what I've done and what I haven't done and trying to balance the scales. The confidence that I have in my salvation comes through understanding that I have grown closer to God every day, and I'm striving to do what He wants me to do, and that God has offered Himself in the blood of His Son to cleanse me. And that's what John talks about when he says that I walk in the light as he is in my light and I have forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for your attention tonight. We need to think about development of spirituality in ourselves, not only as individuals, but as a church as well, that we might have the confidence that we need. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to be responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to put yourself in a position where your spirit can testify with the spirit of God that you are a child of God. And that means you have to submit to what the Spirit has already testified about what makes a Christian, what makes a person right. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Can we help you do that? Let's stand and sing.